Tested is sponsored by Duke Health, home of the Pandemic Response Network, helping communities stay safe and connected during the COVID-19 pandemic by partnering with local schools, businesses, and faith-based organizations to launch COVID-19 symptom support programs in their own communities. Learn more at pandemicresponsenetwork.org. We're also supported by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and kitchen staples to your door starting at $15. Every delivery fights food waste and supports local hunger-solving organizations. HungryHarvest.net I'm Dave DeWitt. This is Tested from WUNC. A look at what the day's challenges tell us about where we are, what we believe, and who we want to be in North Carolina and the South. Today, showing up. Another day, another milestone, as the U.S. passes 400,000 dead from COVID. That's more than the number of Americans who died in battle during World War I, World War II, and Vietnam combined. This horrific milestone is another chance to look back at the last 10 months and see where we went wrong and where we went right. Clearly, tying the wearing of masks and social distancing to some sort of political point about personal freedom was a moment and a movement that, to be blunt, killed people. A simple comparison to other countries that did those things early and more often proves that. On the other end of the spectrum, the burden of responsibility being taken on by our frontline health workers, our first responders, our teachers, our food distributors, and others has been immense. They've borne the brunt of not only the increased workload, but the increased stress that comes with having an essential role in saving lives and providing services to all of us, including to those whose bad choices made their lives more difficult. A very specific sector of the scientific community has also felt the crushing weight of responsibility since the pandemic. Those who had long ago devoted their professional lives to researching coronaviruses. Twelve months ago, they were a relatively small group of scientists focusing on a very specific kind of virus. And then their world blew up. This is like a full court press, like 24-7. It's just, it just hasn't let up. So my name is Timothy Sheehan. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Gilling School of Global Public Health. Nobody calls me Timothy. I guess my mom calls me Timmy. You guys can call me Tim. That probably is the best thing to do. Tim is a coronavirus researcher at UNC Chapel Hill. He's had a busy year. I'm wondering if there was a moment, I guess probably a year ago, maybe even more ago, that you you realized that SARS-CoV-2 was going to become maybe some version of what it's become in terms of a pandemic and that your life was going to drastically change? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, it took me a while to really sound the alarm bells in my own mind. Like, if you think about coronaviruses in general. So in the past 20 years, there have been three new human coronaviruses that have emerged. So like almost 20 years ago with SARS-CoV-1, this virus did get spread around the world to 27 countries, but was basically snuffed out by classic public health measures. So quarantining, you know, simple things, right? And then in 2012, we discovered MERS coronavirus, 
which causes more severe disease, the mortality rates, like 35%, it causes severe respiratory disease. But it's not that transmissible from person to person. So even though that virus also has had a global reach by air travel of infected people, it's not caused a pandemic. So th this is what basically was framing my mindset until the virus reached Europe, and then it was just bonkers. Among Tim Sheehan's many research activities, he's on a team running a clinical trial of an antiviral drug. So like when you do a clinical trial and you want to see if an antiviral drug is working, basically it's intended to stop the virus from rep replicating in a person. People enroll in the trial, they either get placebo or they get the antiviral drug, right? And they get this um, every day for five days. Every day, a nurse is, is, and this is an outpatient study, so these aren't people like going to the hospital. Um, these are people, they get their bottle of medication, they take it home, every day they get a pill, but every day a nurse goes to their house and gives them a nasal swab and asks them questions and takes blood and stuff like that. Um, and so then when you swab someone's nose, that's how you can kind of isolate virus from a person who might be sick. And so we take that swab to the lab and we try and culture virus from that person's nose, essentially. And if the antiviral drug is working, we should not be able to culture virus from the person's nose because the drug has stopped the virus from replicating in the person's body. Like that's one thing that, you know, this afternoon I'm going to go into the lab for maybe four or five hours and work on samples on basically you have to do this in a cell culture. So you take the nasal swab and you add it to a dish of cells that is that is able to support virus infection. Um, so um, I started something a couple of days ago. I'm going to go back and I'm going to work on that study today, tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday. Well, describe and, that. What what has your sort of last 12 months been like? Um, I think initially, until we got an isolate of the virus from CDC in, I think, late February, it was more planning. Like, what are we going to do? What tools do we have at UNC Chapel Hill that can um, help us learn how the virus works? And what can we do to try and stop it from replicating and can we come up with therapeutics and help with the vaccine effort and stuff like that. So it was, it was planning until we got the virus here and then it's just been completely relentless. It's just, we're so busy. There's so much work to do. There's not enough people to do it. There's not enough time in the day to do the work that we need to do. I'm surprised that we can still function. <laughs> that we're still functioning after like Normally in academic research, it's like, you know, a roller coaster ride where it's really, really busy and then it's not so busy. And it's really, really, really busy and it's not so busy. So you get some relief. This is like a full court press, like 24-7. It's just, um, it just hasn't let up. And, and what has that done? I mean, not just to you, but to other folks working about sort of just keeping your you know, mental energy up and your physical energy. I mean, how are you able to even pull away from that? I, um, I don't know. I think it's, this is, it's weird because this is something that you have to do. It's not like we can walk away and just be like, you know, I don't want to do this today. You know, we have to come in and there are studies and experiments and things we have to do. So you just do it. You know, it's like 
I think it's kind of like being a parent where, you know, you're not just going to be like, you know, I don't want to be a parent today. You know, the kids are being really annoying. I'm just going to walk away from this. No, you, you do it because you have to do it because you love to do it. Um, you know, I think the love for work is not maybe what it used to be, but it's still something that is really rewarding. And, you know, you come every day and you do it um, because this is if, if you have things that can help out with the pandemic, you should use those gifts and those tools to do it, right? So that's that's what I try to think about, though. It is trying sometimes. So I'm not a health reporter, but at this point, a year into the podcast, I've done enough interviews of medical professionals to know there's usually an interesting origin story for how people get into this line of work. I was not quite ready for Tim Sheehan's reason, though. Stepping back a little bit, how did you come to do this work? Uh, coronavirus work? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, I actually, um, I'm like a failed musician. So like after undergrad, I like bummed around Boston trying to like do music and be in like a rock band. Um, all the while, like working as a lab technician in, in labs in Boston. Um, and I realized that you know, music really wasn't going to be maybe the best career for me and that, you know, some of the creative side of my brain that was satisfied by music can be satisfied by science. So like I moved to North Carolina to um, to study infectious disease and I ended up joining the lab of Ralph Barrick, who is a famous coronavirologist, who was my PhD mentor in 2003, I guess. I started doing studying coronavirus, studying SARS-1, actually, like in the early 2000s. And, and describe that that was, a, as I understand it, a pretty specific area of study. It wasn't like there were there are people across the world in the numbers of hundreds or thousands who are doing this research. It's a fairly at that point was a fairly small world, right? Yeah. And, and so every um, coronavirus is a kind of nidovirus. And every other year there'd be a nidovirus meeting. And these meetings, you know, it's an international meeting. It might draw 300, 200 people, something like that. Um, and, you know, obviously not everybody in the world would go to this meeting. But, like, I would say, you know, prior to this pandemic, there were maybe 500 people, maybe less than 500 people. Now it's like everybody is doing this. What's that been like for you as one of those sort of relatively few people who, who were an expert in this area to all of a sudden see all this attention on it? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's good and it's bad. I mean, I think it's good for public health to have so many great minds working together to achieve the goal, you know. Um, but at the same time, like me, selfishly, the competition is fierce. And so you know, the kinds of work that we can do um, and the grants that we can write, multiple people are competing for these same things now. Though, you know, at the same time, I think we have a pretty unique group of people and expertise. So I think we're better off than maybe some new person to the field. But I think it forms the choices that you make at work because, you know, we're not going to do something if a hundred other people are going to do it. Um, and write a paper, basically, like we live or die by publications. So if, you know, people are going to beat us to some more like obvious thing, you know, in, in the science, then, you know, we're not going to do it. 
Um, specific to the work on SARS-CoV-2, I'm just wondering sort of what do we not know yet about that virus that we really need to know? Yeah, I, I think there's there's so many unanswered questions. Um, specific, I think like we have a good idea of like the acute disease and the more um, um, and the more like obvious manifestations of disease. You know, like it causes the common cold. Like you know, it's common cold like symptoms in most people. People with pre-existing conditions or people who are of advanced age like can get more severe disease. They can end up in the hospital. But like the long-term repercussions of this infection on every, you know, the spectrum of people who get the disease, I don't think we really know. I think we don't really know about, you know, how long natural immunity will last. So if you got COVID, last February and you're exposed to a new variant, are you going to get sick or not? Uh, and similarly, you know, these vaccines that are coming online now, if SARS-CoV-2 is not able to be eradicated and driven from the earth, like if we miraculously got 100% of the human population vaccinated and that vaccine was sufficient to basically remove all of the potential hosts for this virus, like the virus would disappear, which is what happened with SARS-1, you know? With public health measures, you basically drove the virus from the earth. Um, so, like, if the virus becomes endemic in the human population and kind of becomes part of us and changes in reaction to the immunity that we develop, um, what does that situation look like moving forward? You know, is it does this just become a common cold-like virus, like the other three human coronaviruses that cause the common cold? Or are we getting like pockets of, you know, outbreaks and those outbreaks cause severe disease and we have to come back in and like ring vaccinate people and communities with a new version of the vaccine? I'm um, kind of more similar to like flu. I don't know. That's a question we could talk about for hours, I think. <laughs> I got a feeling that this is another question. We get probably in that same category. But I mean, what have we learned or what have you learned from SARS-CoV-2 that will sort of help us prepare for the next SARS-CoV-3 or 4, or the next pandemic, I mean, what, what have we learned I, I that think, could help us prepare? Yeah, on like a basic level, I think it shows us that coronavirus as a family, they have emergence potential. So that means they're just good at jumping from one species into another to cause a new disease. And so we knew that the family had emergence potential, but now we know that they have pandemic potential. Um, so like this is the first new human coronavirus in modern times um, to cause a pandemic and, you know, it's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people before it's done. Um, hopefully not more. To me, that's the most important thing to know in order to prepare today for the eventuality of another emerging coronavirus in the future. What do you think your next 12 months will be like? <laughs> um just long stretches of vacation uh <laughs> um i don't know like i think we work was crazy up until like the december holidays 
And I think everybody here was hoping that, you know, when we get back, it'll just become more normal. And the workload won't be as as high and it'll just be more like it was like before the pandemic. And that's just not panned out. It's busier. You know, the lab, basically, there are people in the lab definitely Monday through Friday, like 7 to 8 p.m. And we have two labs to work with these viruses that are like high containment labs. So, you know, scheduling your work has been problematic just because everybody's just so busy. Like a lot of the things that we're doing now are to solve like acute problems. So people are working to evaluate samples from uh, COVID vaccinees. So people, we take blood from people who got the vaccine to look to see um, how their body responded to the vaccine. Did they make antibodies that can neutralize the virus and prevent it from infecting cells? Um, so that's like one thing people are doing. Um, but we're still like working on, you know, antiviral drugs and human clinical trials and like things that need answers in the immediate future. Um, and like a lot of the more like basic science and basic biology has kind of been put on the back burner. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can start diving really deep into the biology of this virus in the next 12 months to better understand really specifically on like a molecular level, how this virus is able to make people so sick and why, how is it different than other coronaviruses that we know about today? And finally, I mean, you live in the world, um, you work really hard and you see what you see. I mean, when you go out or when you're watching TV or when you're out in the world and you see people not wearing masks or you see people not social distancing, not taking this seriously, what what's going through your head? Uh, it's really frustrating, you know, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm kind of on the front line, but I'm not like in the ICU, like some friends of mine, they're across the street at UNC hospital and they are treating patients in the ICU, people on ventilators. They're having to say no to, um, the transfer of patients from more like rural areas of the state. People are really sick at these hospitals. They don't have the capacity to treat them because they don't have an ICU. They want to bring them to some place like here. And they're having to say, no, you can't bring this patient who we could really help because we don't have room. So I think really like those are the people who I feel most sad for when I see people disregarding the public health guidelines that are put forth by the state and, you know, CDC. You know, you can't see this virus percolating through the community. It's like, you know, it's an intangible threat. And it's hard for people to really appreciate what it can do until it's like right in front of you or someone that you know gets sick or someone that you know dies. Um, but I'm surprised it's been a year now that, you know, there isn't enough convincing evidence out there for everybody to be following these rules, you know, but, you know, it's hard to make people believe. That's it for this episode of Tested. Rebecca Martinez produced this show. Amanda Magnus is our editor. Lindsay Foster Thomas is the executive producer. I'm Dave DeWitt. Thanks for listening.